0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm
1: Ben Kiefer. Well, let's start off uh, this Friday of quick conversations by getting an update on what's been happening this week uh, in the Iowa legislature. Katerina Sestarik joins us, uh, IPR's state government reporter. Hi, Katerina. Hi, Ben. Wow, this is going fast from what I can tell from your reporting. Iowa Republicans having very ambitious bills aimed at overhauling the state's educational system, and uh, this specific uh, fast-tracking of the governor's wish to have uh, state money to all families uh, to send their kids to a a private school, if they so choose. What's been happening this week?
2: Right. So this bill is moving very quickly. Um, Usually at this time in the legislative session, they're not really considering passing anything on the floor of the House and Senate, at least nothing that is this big of a change for the state. Um, But this week, the Education Committee and the Appropriations Committee in the Senate and the Education Reform Committee in the House approved this bill um, for state-funded private school scholarships with Republicans supporting it and Democrats against it. So now it's eligible for debate by the full House and Senate, and that could begin as soon as Monday. Um, and so for the past two years, the House Republicans haven't had enough votes to pass similar but less expansive bills. Um, but yesterday I asked House Speaker Pat Grassley if he has the votes now to pass it. And here's what he said.
1: I don't think I'd be um, moving the bill along throughout the process if we didn't have that expectation. Yeah. Caterino remind us, back up a moment uh, for those not quite on board with the specifics of this GOP proposal. Uh, what would change here?
2: Well, this would eventually, over the next few years, give every private school student a account funded by the state. It would be the same amount of money that the state spends per student on public school education. So right now, that's about $7,600, um, and this is money that the family could use for private school tuition, and then if there's any money left over for other educational services, such as tutoring and textbooks. Um, And this is estimated to cost the state, once it's fully phased in, about $340 million per year.
1: Why are Republicans taking this fast-track approach this time?
2: Well, they won't really say, um, but it seems that um, the governor has been, you know, really turning up the pressure on um, Republicans to get this done. Um, And even House Speaker Pat Grassley this week Um, he led an effort to even make a rule change that would make it easier for them to get this bill to the floor. Um, Typically, a bill that would spend state money has to go through another committee, which is the Appropriations Committee that deals with the state budget. Um, But they passed a rule change that would exempt this bill from going through that additional committee consideration. So that basically, Grassley said to avoid any potential roadblocks from getting it to the House floor for a full vote. Um, so that that was a pretty unusual change.
1: Mm-hmm. Republicans, as um, because of the midterm results, increased their majorities in both uh, chambers of the Iowa State House. But tell us uh, what are critics saying about uh, this move, um, this change in our education uh, system? Democrats, also public education advocates uh, uh, saying this is not a good move, right?
2: Right. Um, Democrats have been united in their opposition to this. Um, they're saying that it'll devastate rural schools and communities, that it'll take public money out of public education. And they're also pointing out that private schools can discriminate. They can reject applicants who are LGBTQ. They can reject kids with disabilities because they're not, they don't necessarily can provide the services to support them. And there's really no accountability for who they're accepting or rejecting from the school. And these are points that, you know, Republicans counter with saying it's just their goal to allow parents to put their kids in the in the environment that's best for them or to align with their values. And they say it's not pitting public against private schools and that the plan will still keep some money and even put some new money into public schools. But this is just, you know, it's, it's a really big change. And um, there's still no nonpartisan fiscal analysis of the bill available um, because it's moving so quickly. And uh, Democrats say, you know, why not wait so that we can see this information to see what the nonpartisan agency says this will really cost the state. But Republicans are moving forward with the cost estimates from the Reynolds administration, and they're saying that they've done their due diligence on this.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Katerina, in the final minute um, away from education as an issue, I understand uh, you're watching how uh, lawmakers there at the state house are considering a fix. Uh, for the Veterans Assistance Fund. Uh, tell us about that.
2: Right. So there's a Iowa Veterans Trust Fund that allocates money that veterans um, that can veterans can use for emergency issues like home and car repairs or medical bills. And um, it ran already ran out for this fiscal year. So um Republicans and Democrats have a few um, different ideas to add some more money going forward in future years so that there's more money for to help veterans with those issues. And since the money already ran out for this fiscal year, they're also looking at ways to put some more money into the current year's budget so that they can pay the unpaid bills that are out there and help more veterans.
1: Okay, Katarina Sistaric, IPR's state government reporter. Thanks so much for the update, Katarina. Thanks, Ben. Just a reminder that Monday on River to River, uh, Grant Gerlach uh, will join me to discuss the GOP education bills, various ones advancing in the State House. You can join us Monday with your questions live, questions and concerns uh, about what you hear coming out of the State House, or email that question or concern to us right now. Our email, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, let's turn now from politics to the topic of the environment and safe drinking water here in Iowa. Jared Strong is a senior reporter for Iowa Capital Dispatch. He spent months investigating drinking water contamination in the state in one particular community, and he joins me now. Jared Strong, welcome back to our program.
3: Hey, Ben. uh, Thanks for having me.
1: You have focused your attention for this extensive investigative work on the town of Nichols. That is in uh, southeast Iowa, population of a few hundred, uh, Muscatine County, where it's located. And you've focused on this, I think, and you can elaborate because uh, like many other smaller communities in the state, uh, residents in Nichols uh, rely for drinking water on shallow Wells and this makes them susceptible to ag contamination. Recount the story of what you found in Nichols and why you focused on that community.
3: Well, I I first heard about Nichols uh, close to a year ago. Um, The DNR was um, threatening to find a restaurant in Nichols that wasn't regularly testing its water, Um, and you know, because it's a, a, a community water supply. That has had contamination in the past, it's required to do these regular tests and uh, just looking into that more, I found out that wow, it's not just this restaurant that's got this shallow well it's it's virtually everyone in town and they they sit in sort of a unique area of the state where they they have this uh this shallow alluvial aquifer that they can just tap into by by pounding these metal pipes into the ground and have like this screened spike on the end of them uh so so literally like re- residents themselves can make their own wells um so anyway because they're so shallow um they are highly susceptible to surface contamination and uh, what i found out was that you know about 25 years ago um the state discovered uh that there are these plumes of contamination um emanating from two agricultural businesses on the west side of this town um That, uh, you know, it it was basically these contaminations were flowing through uh, this groundwater from west to east and, uh, and, um, you know, contaminating a large number of wells in the city. Mm -hmm.
1: And you spoke with residents there. You open your piece by um, uh, and close it, actually bookend the piece by talking with the resident John O'Connell there. And, uh, you know, he uh, uh, described because he had been uh, one of one of the residents. Many residents were were supplied bottled drinking water until uh, a nitrate problem had been remedied and then it was and then it wasn't. Talk about that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. John uh, was among a handful of residents in town uh, with sort of this ongoing contamination um, up until uh, the state's testing uh, ceased about four years ago. I mean, he he he's been there for 50 years and he John's not he's not like this country bumpkin. He's a he's a retired electrical engineer. Um, And so, you know, his his uh, testing ceased about four years ago. When uh, uh, when the DNR determined that it was finally below the federal safety threshold, uh, you know, for nitrate, nitrate was still the remaining contamination. There had been herbicides and pesticides, but nitrate was the, sort of the remaining concern. And as soon as uh, one of the tests showed that it was below this 10 parts per million threshold um, that the uh, that the Fed uses, um, they stopped testing. Well, I, you know, just sort of on a hunch, I was like John, you know, maybe you should test your water again, just see where it's at, see if it kept going down. And lo and behold, uh, when he had it tested by the county in September, um, it was up again. It was back up above that uh, that ten parts per million threshold.
1: Mhm. And and so what happened then? Um, I think at the prompting of of some of your reporting, because of your some of your reporting, right?
3: Well, yeah, the you know the DNR. They basically said that fluctuations like that are uh, to be expected. Yeah. You know, there's the, this, this town is surrounded by farm fields. And so, you know, uh, through uh, John's backyard, there's, there's a farm field there where uh, nitrate is probably being applied to it. And therefore, it has this ability to get into his drinking water again. So the d n r basically says that occasional blips are normal, and they 're not going to they' they're not going to come back in and sort of reopen this investigation into the contamination of the town unless there's some sort of showing of widespread contamination again.
1: one of the points you make in your your extensive feature, Jared, and I guess I was surprised at this point is that community members you call it a complacent community, and you back it up with some quotes uh, from some of the community members that have well, gotten used to it, or what do you think, don't realize uh, the dangers of uh, nitrates in the water and other contaminants?
3: It's a combination of a bunch of different things. You know, When they, when they first discovered this contamination, uh, Monsanto, uh, which is now owned by Bayer and a you know, producer of some of these chemicals, offered filtration systems to people who had herbicide and pesticide contamination, and there were people who turned them down for that. Um, you know, when, the, when another company uh, ended, up, uh, who ended up supplying bottled water to, to John and other residents, you know, when they made this offer of bottled water to people who still had nitrate in their drinking water, there were, there were people who turned that down. So, I mean, it's, it, some of it was people have been drinking this water forever, and unless you're an infant, you're probably not going to have some sort of acute response to high nitrate levels. So, you know, they've been drinking it for, for decades and they're, they haven't uh, had any adverse health uh, complications because of that. So I think they can just keep drinking it. Some people uh, didn't want uh, to have to pay for a municipal water supply. They liked their shallow wells that were cheap to make in the first place, were cheap to operate just based on their electrical costs. And, uh, you know, they just decided to use that for – showering, washing dishes, and just bought bottled water uh, to drink instead.
1: To be clear, even though some people are are, are very casual about nitrates in their water or not too worried about it, you point out, and let me just quote from your article, uh, nitrate limits the amount of oxygen in blood and is particularly dangerous for infants who can suffer from blue, what is called blue baby syndrome if they consume too much. It has also been linked to cancers and thyroid disease might be harmful to fetuses. Just to make sure that you know the inf- what people do with the information is one thing, but we want to make sure we we get out the dangers that have been established by science uh, of too many nitrates in your water. One other thing I wanted to to, to ask you about here is you, you quote Daryl Mattingly. Uh, he's a former mayor of Nichols. He said it had the look of a cover up. How so?
3: Well, um, so there, like I said before, there are two companies uh, where this contamination likely came from one is still operating one had closed up shop like a decade before they discovered any of this contamination uh they had raised all the buildings it was just sort of this open field so it it uh, you know it was like they 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 disappeared in the dead of night almost you know and left this contamination um and then the, the second component is that while the companies did eventually um you know assist with uh cleaning up the soil contamination they did groundwater monitoring they they paid for some of these mitigations for residents they were never fined for any of it mm-hmm. and uh, you know so people people thought that was kind of suspect that uh, companies could could cause this kind of problem but then not have any sort of uh, you know financial penalty other than the mitigation efforts that they had
1: yeah uh what are current city officials in Nichols saying about the problem you reached out to them
3: yeah uh crickets was what I got back from them okay um, I, was, <laughs> I was able to talk to the to the city clerk who kind of filled me in on a few things but I got no calls back uh, from any city council member or the mayor mm-hmm
1: so Nichols' future, their water, and I want to ask you about what the wider implications are for those, in just a minute, for those um, listening who may in, be in a small community like Nichols, depending on well water. Uh, but uh, Nichols, as a remedy, should have gone, what, years ago to a municipal water service, um, but they haven't.
3: No, I, and And yes, that is the clearest way to fix the problem, is to go to municipal water system. But, you know, residents don't want to pay for it. Some of them have uh, have drilled their own deeper wells uh, with success. They don't have, um, you know, this threat of contamination anymore. Some people, uh, like one uh, one that I quoted in my story, uh, buys bottled water. Or they just simply roll the dice and, uh, and drink the water.
1: So what are the implications here, Jared, for other towns in Iowa that may depend on shallow wells and may be worried about contamination?
3: Well, and... And we don't know, the DNR does not track how many towns there are out there like Nichols. Um, They kind of rely on sort of this institutional knowledge of, uh, you know, DNR officials who have gone out to some of these cities and dealt with some of these problems. So, you know, near Nichols, there's Fruitland just to the east that has the same thing happening. They could connect to municipal water. But to speak to your question on how people can protect themselves, The the best way, and it's free, is to get your water tested. The county offers free testing uh, that's funded by the state. It'll uh, detect uh, bacteria and nitrate in your water supply, and that's really the first step. But I I will admit I'm perhaps the best example of complacency on that. I live out in the sticks in western Iowa and report about water quality issues with some regularity, uh, but when was the last time I had my own well tested? Eight years ago. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, well, this prompts you to do so after all of this yes. reporting, I bet, right?
3: <laughs> yes, yes, it's oh. on my list.
1: Right, and that's regardless that so you live in any of the Iowa's 99 counties, you can request a water quality test, right, or the results? Yes. Good to know. Jared Strong, uh, so good to uh, read your reporting. Check it out at the Iowa Capital Dispatch, where Jared is a senior reporter doing a lot of um, important work Uh, Far too little of this type of investigative reporting uh, being done in the state. Jared, we're glad that you are doing it, and we can talk to you about it. Jared Strong, thank you.
3: Thanks for the kind words, Ben. Take care.
1: It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Tornadoes in Iowa in January? Yep, it happened this week. Let's find out what exactly happened from Andy Irvin. He's Senior Meteorologist for the National Weather Service in the Quad Cities office. Hi, Andy. Hello. I understand it's been decades since we've had tornadoes in in January in in Iowa. What happened and and where did it happen? Give us some details, please.
4: Well, it uh, certainly was a a quick event here in in southeast Iowa. We warmed up the springtime and had ourselves uh, some springtime weather. And certainly this is the first time since, uh, I believe, 1967 that we've had tornadoes reported in Iowa in January. And this is the earliest documented tornado that we have had in Iowa.
1: Why would we be seeing tornadoes outside of uh, the peak tornado season, which we associate with the spring?
4: Really, the most important factor for tornadoes uh, beyond wind shear would be the access to uh, mild or warm, moist air. And we did have that just for a few hours in uh, southeast Iowa on the 16th of January as the storm system moved up through central Iowa. That brought just enough warm spring moist air up into Iowa just for a few hours. And uh, that did create a situation where a tornado was possible. And we had two tornadoes occur, one of which was photographed by uh, quite a few people.
1: Yeah, I saw the pictures. Very impressive. Uh, Winds uh, strong enough to topple a semi-trailer, I believe, also push a car off a road. Uh, Thankfully, no injuries from the reports that I've read.
4: That's correct. Uh, We did have some minor damage done to a a cattle shelter outbuilding, as well as some tree damage at a farmstead uh, before it lifted. Uh, Kind of the tornado path uh, developed fairly close to Interstate 80, and then it went on to the northeast and crossed Highway 51.
1: Mm -hmm. Did these have a classification, an EF classification?
4: Right, and that tornado did, uh, again, it uh, formed near Interstate 80, just northeast of Williamsburg, and actually lifted very close to Highway 151. Uh, That tornado was classified an EF-1, which is a weaker tornado. It had estimated peak winds of 90 miles an hour. It was a wide tornado that was 400 yards wide, so classified kind of as a Mm. wedge tornado. It was on the ground for about 4.7 miles and eight minutes before lifting.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, let's zoom out to, to, to talk about the storm front that, that caused that, because a lot of Iowa this week, um, more toward the central part of the state, the northern part and the western part, had some real heavy, wet snowfall. <laughs> what can you tell us about the, the winter weather that moved through the state this week? Yeah,
4: for the second time in a week, we had southeast Iowa experiencing uh, mild weather and rainfall, but of course, if you live in central Iowa or northwest Iowa, it was definitely a winter storm, and there was heavy, wet snow that fell across a lot of northwest half of Iowa. Some places uh, in the state, uh, especially the northwest and north central, saw 8 to 12 inches of snow uh, down closer to the Des Moines area. Anywhere from 3 to 6 inches of snow was common up through the Waterloo area.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know how this winter is stacking up since we're in the middle of January, how this winter is stacking up so far in terms of uh, averages, uh, temps, and precipitation?
4: Well, in general, it's actually been a fairly snowy winter across much of uh, Minnesota into Wisconsin. But uh, the further south you get into Iowa, we've had very little snow over the course of the winter. So uh, like many times when people ask how the winter was, it really depends on where you're at. Uh, Minnesota is certainly a snowy winter. They've had plenty of cold air. And uh, if you're south of Interstate 80 in Iowa, you might be wondering where winter is because we've had almost (laughs) no snow and plenty of bouts of mild air.
1: All right. So give us a glimpse uh, ahead. What does the weekend uh, into next week look like? We
4: have a very weak storm system moving through the area on Saturday. Uh, We're going to keep the cool air around, and that should mean a bout of light snow across uh, the southeast part of Iowa, so generally we're talking about south of a uh, Des Moines to Dubuque line, and even there the amounts are going to be fairly light. We're looking for one to two inches of snow, not a whole lot of wind with that, so that'll be kind of a classic light snow event Saturday evening.
1: All right, Andy Irvin is a senior meteorologist for the National Weather Service in the Quad Cities office. Andy, thank you so much. You betcha, thank you for calling. And after a short break, uh, we'll talk with Vanessa Miller of the Gazette. Uh, She'll tell us why UI healthcare workers are clamoring for a large pay increase. Also uh, about green lights for a new veterinary diagnostic lab at Iowa State University. And more on the indigent defense crisis that Iowa's chief justice uh, called to our attention last week. We'll be back with more of your News Buzz edition. I'm Ben Kiefer. Stay tuned.
0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including above and beyond cancer.
1: And we're back with this NewsBuzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. So far this hour, we have ventured into political and environmental news with our Friday quick conversations on NewsBuzz. Let's get to some Iowa news from the field of health care. Vanessa Miller joins us, higher education reporter with the Gazette, and uh, she's been doing some work on health-related news, uh, having to do, with uh, Iowa's two public universities, ISU and the UI. Hello, Vanessa.
5: Hi, how are we doing?
1: Doing fine. Let's start off with the news from the UI that you've been reporting on. Uh, The union representing thousands of University of Iowa healthcare workers opening contract negotiations with the Board of Regents, which, of course, governs the three public universities here in Iowa. Vanessa, I see quite a large gap between what uh, they want for a pay raise, the union, and what the the regents has offered.
5: Yeah, yeah. The union met with the regents in public for the first time on Wednesday. The rest of the meetings will happen behind closed doors. And they came with a 25-page proposal. Um, And in that, they asked for a 14% pay raise in this upcoming budget year, and then a 12% pay raise in the following year. These are two-year contracts. The regents proposed a 1.5% minimum pay raise and a 3% pay raise for returning employees. And again, this was just on a single page because, as we know, in 2017, the legislature uh, took back all of the collective bargaining um, allowances. So basically, public unions, most public unions can only bargain um, about, about wages.
6: Mm -hmm.
1: So what are the arguments that the union is making for such a large pay increase?
5: Well, they're arguing that they're short-staffed and that the University of Iowa and the state of Iowa in general is underpaying its employees, that there's a huge gap between, between here and even neighboring states like Minnesota and Michigan and Illinois, they're saying, uh, we're losing employees, people are leaving to become traveling nurses, we are struggling um, to keep up with our patient loads, Um, and it's having ramifications. And not only do we need a cost of living pay raise, as, as happens typically, we need to catch up. And so that's, they're saying they need that big jump to just get Level with other states and to be competitive in terms of recruitment and retention.
1: Okay, pay differential. Another one that jumped out in your reporting. I'd like you to explain the increase in workplace violence. Uh, explain that because we don't connect that with Iowa healthcare workers usually.
5: Right. Well, and so while the state doesn't have to bargain over wages, they or anything but wages, they can include other stuff in the contract. They're allowed to. They just don't have to. And so. The union is asking them to include in their contract some some things that would improve uh, the protections that are in place for them. And they talked a lot about workplace safety and the violence that they're experiencing daily. Um, there were you know almost a dozen healthcare workers in the room, and when they were asked about whether they had experienced any workplace violence, they all raised their hands. and And one person said it's regular for him to be punched in the face weekly. Um, another woman said that. She works in the emergency department and she said that a knife had been pulled last night um, or the night before she was having this discussion. And so and so they all shared uh, about the problems. And they said that that's because of, in part, low staffing numbers, that people will sit in the emergency department for hours and hours, 12 hours even, and just escalate and get more and more upset to the point where when they finally get back there, they're they're not doing well emotionally specifically.
1: Okay, we'll keep track of those negotiations. Let's move on to other uh, UI Healthcare uh, news you've been reporting on. By 2025, University of Iowa Healthcare expects to have a new primary care location up and running in southeast Iowa City. Tell us, why is there a need for that?
5: Yeah, well, they were just, they did uh, an assessment to see where they had their primary care locations. They have a lot in places like Coralville, obviously, and in Iowa City and across the country. But or across tr- the counties and in, in the region, but they didn't have many in southeast Iowa City, and they compared that again with their emergency department visits because that is a challenge with them. They have a huge number of, of turn away, uh, turnaways, people who never get seen, and, and it's just cramped. It's cramped, and they're struggling with that. And so they were, they found that there aren't many, and they think that's a reason that there are high emergency department visits from the southeast portion of Iowa City, and that maybe adding a primary care location there. Um, would help would benefit would keep those emergency department visits down
1: okay so this planned expansion going ahead um, due by 2025 and and I see in your reporting uh, there's always been friction with community hospitals across that area eastern Iowa um, because uh, uh, the UI hospitals they are the big boy in the area right
5: Right. I mean, yeah, when they wanted to build that new hospital in North Liberty, all of the community hospitals came out and said the UIC is veering out of its lane. They're getting into our lane. They're trying to compete with us. And um, it's going to be a monopoly if you're not careful. They told this to the state. Um, The university said we're only worried about tertiary and quaternary care, which is the sickest patients. And we're not trying to take away patients um, from the community hospitals. But again, I I asked some of the community hospitals about, the UI's um, RFP request for bids on this primary care location, and they're saying, yeah, this is what we said. They want to get into primary care. They want to expand their primary care, um, and this is what we were worried about.
1: Let's pivot over to uh, ISU. Uh, Vanessa, good news for a long-sought uh, new veterinary diagnostic lab at, uh, at the Ames uh, University. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah, well, five years ago, Iowa State, proposed a $124 million new veterinary diagnostic lab, which serves the entire state, not just Iowa state. I mean, it, it, you know, underpins the whole $32.5 million ag industry, animal ag industry. And so they're saying, we're out of date. We have accreditation now, but we're at risk of losing it because our facilities aren't up to snuff. And um, the they asked the state to provide $100 million toward that $124 million Projects, so the state came back with a with a lower with a lower offer, sixty three point five million toward that new lab, and so that forced Iowa State to downgrade the cost, the overall cost to seventy five million. They um, have now broken. They say we still need what we needed originally, so they've broken it into two phases. They say that was the first phase, but now we're moving on to the second, and we still need more money. So they're saying we. Uh, we are asking. You're asking for 62.5 million. And earlier this week, Governor Reynolds said that she's committing a total of 60 million dollars, or saying that the legislature should do that. She's saying 40 million would come from the um, Federal American Rescue Plan Act, and then she's um, included 20 million in her proposed budget. It would come from the Rebuild Iowa Infrastructure Fund.
1: Right, that Federal American Rescue Plan Act, something that the governor opposed in 2021, you point out.
5: Yes, yeah, she was against that originally.
1: Okay, and uh, very quickly, uh, what happens at this veterinary diagnostic lab that matters to all of
5: us? Yeah, I mean, they are on the front lines of responding to things like the avian, you know, bird flu. When that comes around, testing animals, making sure that our food system is safe. They also were involved in helping uh, with COVID tests, even when it comes to some of the human emergencies when that happens. But it also matters to just individual farmers who might have a sick animal and need, uh, and need a test run to make sure that it's something that's not going to spread among uh, livestock. So they, they really are coming to play on so many levels and, again, support the entire um, agriculture industry, not just in Iowa, but across the region and country, even world.
1: Vanessa Miller, higher education reporter with the Gazette. Thanks for now. Until next time, Vanessa.
5: Yes, thanks again. Thanks for having me.
1: It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Now a bit of follow-up to a conversation from earlier this week. Um, last week, Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen delivered the annual condition of the judiciary address. Now, she outlined some concerns facing Iowa's judicial system. We talked about them on Tuesday with Randy Evans. He's the executive director of the Iowa Freedom for, of Information Council. And uh, he's, uh, in this context, importantly, uh, had been a reporter for over 40 years for the Des Moines Register, covering civil and criminal courts. Uh, Randy, welcome back briefly. uh, We have some, uh, our conversation earlier this week um, generated an email question I'd like to toss your way. Certainly. All right. This comes from Paul in Algona. Um, He said he appreciated Tuesday's coverage of the indigent defense crisis facing Iowa, but then he writes, uh, I took the word indigent to refer to specifically to persons who are unhoused or perhaps wards of the state and the like. It was only later, he writes, that it occurred to him that the word in question when used in the phrase indigent defense is actually anyone who may receive the services of an attorney paid for by the state, which may be the only option available to a significant percentage of our state's population. He goes on, as a person who falls outside that demographic, it would have been useful to hear some potential hazards the crisis poses to regular people, uh, such as uh, weeks or months extra time in jail for criminal defendants awaiting trial, or how the outdated reimbursement rates inherently poses a risk, a higher risk, he writes, for instances of ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, he says he uh, appreciates the, the the work and the, the program. Paul, we appreciate your email. Let's tackle that, Randy. Uh, Let's clarify, what does indigent indigent mean in this context?
6: In this context, Ben, uh, what the the chief justice was referring to was uh, uh, the income guidelines that are uh, uh, contained in Iowa law that uh, uh, spell out the qualifications for those who uh, would qualify for a court-appointed attorney. Uh, it's all tied to the uh, uh, the federal government's uh, so-called poverty level uh, guidelines, which uh, are based on the income uh, of the individual and the the size of the person's family. Uh, you know, and Iowa's uh, indigent defense law uh, speaks to the 125 percent of the poverty level in real numbers. Uh, a a one-member family uh, would qualify for a court-appointed attorney uh, if their income is uh, uh, below about $17,000 a year. Uh, A family of four uh, would qualify if their uh, household income fell approximately below $35,000 a year.
1: Yeah, so, so, so to the second part of his question here in the last couple minutes of our our conversation. Uh, he'd like to know, uh, and this sounds like, based on the the income levels you you raise, this can uh, this affects uh, potentially a, a large number of Iowans. Uh, what about uh, Paul's question about potential hazards due to this crisis uh, that uh, regular people would face?
6: Yeah, it's the uh, the effects of the the shortage of attorneys willing to take court appointments. Uh, affects multiple layers uh, in in iowa it affects uh those who are accused of uh of crimes uh certainly but it also affects the uh uh, the families of the victims of crimes because uh, they uh, are left waiting longer before they uh get uh, uh you know justice uh for the the crime uh, and it also affects the the community as a whole because uh, you know the the person who is accused of a crime while they're waiting trial may well be uh, uh, out in the the public. Uh, you know Paul uh, wonders about whether they will spend that time in jail, and that's uh, you know the purpose of, of bail is to uh, allow a person to to be free while they are awaiting trial. Uh, And it's, it's also important for the public to realize that this, what we're talking about are, are crimes, Uh, murders, attempted murders. Uh, We're talking about juvenile court cases where it's uh, uh, involving uh, uh, potentially uh, uh, minors who are accused of, of criminal acts. Uh, uh, We're talking about, uh, perhaps the termination of parental rights. Uh, and we are not talking about uh, uh, you know, routine traffic charges or, uh, or civil cases. Uh, so you know, we're, we're dealing with uh, people in our community who are accused of crimes and, and people who are victims of crimes who are having to uh, wait for justice to be uh, uh, handed out.
1: Okay, so it sounds like a real red flag when the Chief Justice Christensen says uh, this: um, uh, providing indigent counsel for defending impoverished criminal defendants and and juvenile court clients on the brink of collapse. That's a real red flag.
6: Well, and those who know the chief uh, know that she's not one who is uh, uh, given to uh, hyperbole or uh, uh, she's not somebody who's... uh, uh, regularly reaching for the panic button. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, I think the the chief's, uh, you know, remarks to the legislature are uh, kind of a wake-up call for the, the citizens of Iowa.
1: Okay. Randy Evans, uh, the director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council. Uh, thanks for that explanation, and thanks again to Paul in Algona for uh, that email. We appreciate it. Take care, Randy. Thanks, Ben. And that just about does it for this news buzz edition of River to River from IPR News for this January 20th. It was on this date in 2009. What happened? Barack Obama sworn in as the U.S. president, uh, our country's first black president. It doesn't seem like that was yesterday, but has it been 14 years already? I guess it has. Tony Dainer joins me now to groove us into the weekend. Hi, Tony. Hey there, Ben. You've got a couple of uh, tunes, uh, I hope, uh, to put us in the weekend mode.
7: Yes, I do. Two uh, very different sounding songs this week, both new to our library and both from upcoming records that we're very excited about. This first one is from The New Pornographers, one of the best power pop bands out there. A.C. Newman is the guy behind New Pornographers, kind of the mastermind of the group. And every new album from New Pornographers is kind of a big occasion here at Studio One. This next one comes out at the end of March. It's called Continue as a Guest. Uh, This is kind of an all-star band at this point. Some of the members have gone on to uh, big things. Nico Case is kind of a part-time member of New Pornographers and is back for this record. Dan Behar, who you might know from his other project Destroyer, is not with the band this time around, but he did co write this song that we're about to hear. This is The New Pornographers with the first single from their upcoming album. It's called Really, Really Light.
8: How many have you pulled from the end? You're not seeing them now But they're all more or less there, yeah What were the odds on this Pain and switch? Knowing your choice was a pantheon of the ditch Except on my chance and I'll do it again Now my arm is asleep Not done shaking it away, yeah
1: One from the Canadian indie rock band uh, The New Pornographers, a band formed way back in the 1990s, I think, Tony, right?
7: Yep, that's right.
1: All right, we have time for one more. I'm glad to see on your list uh, we have some Taj Mahal, a new one from Taj Mahal.
7: Yes, this is coming at the end of April. It's called Savoy. Uh, this is a collection of j- vocal jazz classics as done by Taj Mahal. He's talked about being very excited about showing off his uh vocal jazz abilities, which we're going to hear in just a moment. Uh, The title of this album, uh, it's paying tribute to the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem, where Taj Mahal's parents actually met. They were at an Ella Fitzgerald concert. There is going to be a version of Stomping at the Savoy on here. Uh, We're going to hear new versions of Summertime and Sweet Georgia Brown when this album comes out, among others. The first single is out now. This is Taj Mahal doing G-Baby, Ain't I Good to You.
8: treat you the way that I do gee baby ain't I good to you there's nothing in this whole world too good for a girl so sweet and true gee baby ain't I bought you a fur coat for christmas and a diamond ring big killer and everything
1: oh the unmistakable voice of taj mahal that's a new one g baby ain't i good to you. Um, courtesy of uh, Tony Daner picking that out and giving us a forecast of more new Taj Mahal to come. All you have to do is uh, listen to IPR Studio One. How can people do that uh, as we go out with uh, the voice and the, the mellow sound? I have to say uh, you may have to finish up this show, Tony because there is such a deep <laughs> deep sense of bluesy relaxation washing over me. I'm, I'm propping myself up just to reach the microphone.
7: Oh, well, uh, I'll do my best, Ben. Uh, yeah, Studio One tracks Monday through Saturday nights at 7 o'clock and uh, also Saturday afternoons at 4 o'clock. And don't forget Studio One All Access. That's at 1 o'clock Saturdays, 7 o'clock Sunday nights.
1: Thanks, Tony.
7: Thanks, Ben. I
8: you a fur coat for Christmas And a diamond ring A big cat-like car And everything love makes me treat you the way that I do. Gee, baby, ain't I good to you? Oh, gee, baby, ain't I?
1: River to River, produced by Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have a wonderful and relaxing weekend. Could you?
0: This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.